When it comes to transfer pricing, you really have to respect India. Without a care in the world for what any other country thinks, India moves to the beat of its own tabla. Few countries are as bold and forward-thinking. Take its friends with benefits relationship with the OECD, for example. I mean, what gives? India is still not a member, but it did deposit its instrument of ratification for the multilateral instrument last summer, and it participates in a host of OECD committees. Kind of like saying this dating thing is fun, but I may never commit. But I'm not going anywhere. But I might. It's made a few sophisticated unilateral moves like 2018 significant economic presence rule, which basically means you have to pay taxes in India if you have a significant economic presence, even if you don't have a physical one. And more recently, the government proposed a profit attribution plan abandoning the arm's length principle. What's Indian for brave? Anyone? Hello, everyone. It's Matthew DeMello, your host of the Fiona Show, cross-border solutions transfer pricing podcast. If you haven't figured it out by now, today we'll be talking about one of the most dimensional countries in the world, India, the world's second largest English speaking country. Bet you didn't know that. And of course, the U.S. is number one. India's economic interests overlap both developed and developing countries. And for transfer pricing, that means, well, we don't know what that means because who knows what India will do next. We've got a special guest for you today as well. Saini Prasanna, an expert in transfer pricing and a teaching and research associate at the WU Transfer Pricing Center at the Vienna University of Economics and Business. But before we get started, remember, you can earn CPE credits for listening to this podcast. Here's how it works. We're planting two CPE code words in this episode. Listen for both code words and send them to all one word, the Fiona show at xbs.ai and we'll reply with your certificate. How easy is that? Now, let's see what's happening with transfer pricing in the news. Stock up on Purell, wash your hands, cover your mouth when you sneeze. When it comes to coronavirus precautions, more is more. But the virus doesn't just compromise immune systems. It can also affect transfer pricing positions. In China, where the virus and mandatory quarantines first came on the scene, manufacturing has practically halted. And as a result, MEs are grappling with broken links in their supply chains and routine returns that are suddenly not so routine. So what are you going to do about it? Be as vigilant with your transfer pricing as you are with your hand washing and start strategizing now. Review intercompany agreements to see if they allow for transfer pricing adjustments. Check functional profiles on last year's documentation and see if they're at risk. Are you having cash flow issues that warrant intra-group financing? These are the things you want to know now. Sure, you're in the throes of putting the finishing touches on your corporate income tax return. So we know taking stock of supply chain chaos now feels like a big tax pile-on. But strategizing about coronavirus today means you'll be more prepared down the road when your documentation is under the microscope and the virus is a distant memory. Fingers crossed. Listen up, multinational companies. South Africa is on to you. The government is so tired of watching taxable dollars leave the country that it's finally joining the rest of the world and cracking down on tax evasion and avoidance. The focus, you guessed it, transfer pricing. In a February 27th announcement, South African Revenue Service Commissioner Edward Kaiswetter said that, quote, significant revenues leave South Africa every year due to profit shifting in the form of intra-group services between multinational companies. Ring any bell? 
Israel's MNEs. To save the South African tax base, tax authorities plan to introduce an automated transfer pricing risk assessment system that will help them pinpoint companies and transactions worthy of, well, let's just say a closer look. In those cases, by the way, have your documentation rock solid and ready to go. If you fail to comply with the authorities' request for info, the government may take, quote, criminal action. And while we don't know exactly what they have in mind, it's safe to say it won't be fun. Isn't it funny how the same place you post pictures of your kids and your dog and that funny license plate you saw this morning is also the place setting critical global standards on privacy, the use of data, truth-telling, and now cost-sharing arrangements? It can't be easy being Facebook. The social media networking site that seems to be in the news as much as it delivers the news, fake or otherwise, is back in court, this time facing the IRS over a 2010 cost-sharing agreement with an Irish subsidiary. We won't bore you with the details. It's a nine-year dispute, so you're welcome. Still, it's safe to say each side has a gripe. The IRS argues that at $7 billion, Facebook undervalued intellectual property used by overseas subsidiaries in exchange for royalty payments and therefore more profits are taxable in the U.S. And at 2010's nausea-inducing rate of 35%, no less. Ouch. Facebook, however, argues that the arrangement was made before the company went public and the IP is actually overvalued at $7 billion. And how's this for chutzpah? The company wants a refund. $9 billion is on the line. And what's even more important, we mean to us, is what the outcome means for the future of cost-sharing arrangements. Looks like the company has one more global precedent to set. Like it or, well, it's Facebook, so that's your only option. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University every Tuesday and Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai tpu. A PhD candidate at the Vienna University of Economics and Business, Saini Persana, spent his career focusing on transfer pricing. A former senior consultant in transfer pricing and international taxation at Ernst & Young, Saini co-authored Transfer Pricing Developments in Developing Countries and Emerging Economies, Transfer Pricing Supply Chain Management and Business Restructurings, Accurate Delineation and Recognition of Actual Transactions, Comparability Analysis, Introduction to Transfer Pricing, and well, we can fill up all of your time just listing his amazing number of transfer pricing titles. Where does he find 
the time. Just last month, Signee finished up an internship in the tax treaty and transfer pricing unit at the OECD, where he worked on Pillar 1's unified approach in Paris. Okay, we'll let him off the hook for that one. And now he's back to teaching courses on international tax and transfer pricing at the WU Transfer Pricing Center in Austria. It's a pleasure to have you with us today, Signee. But for right now, let's get to know Signee a little bit better. Signee, how did you get into transfer pricing? Yeah, so I started with uh, transfer pricing almost accidentally by finding one of the jobs in big fours in India, in EY specifically. Before that, I did my MBA in finance in India, and I had a background, a bit of it in economics and, and accounting. And then I almost stumbled upon transfer pricing. I had a great set of leaders and mentors who kind of guided my interest in transfer pricing. I found some sweet spots in transfer pricing around intangibles and some specific tastes around it. And then I wanted to do something more fundamental and something more creative in transfer pricing. So that's how I slowly started kind of uh, metamorphosizing myself into academia. So that's how I started my PhD, focusing on transfer pricing. And I landed up in Vienna at the Vienna University of Economics and Business. And here I focus my PhD specializing on transfer pricing. So over the past three years, it's been like a healthy mix of experiences, a bit with academia and also a bit of policy with the OECD where I was an intern last year with the transfer pricing division. Each of these experiences coupled with the consulting experience in India has kind of solidified my transfer pricing experience over the past six years. And what do you find most interesting about it? I would say largely the interdisciplinary approach in transfer where we have the use of a bit of economics, a bit of legal, a bit of accounting, and a bit of business and so on. But more importantly, what I have also come to see and what fascinates me is, is the very game in transfer We have the tax administrations on one side, we have the taxpayers on the other side, and then the various other elements that keep chipping in, like the advisors, the policymakers, academicians, more so more recently, and each one having a particular narrative about what transfer pricing means to them, what their intent means to transfer pricing, and so on. So I had more recently a wonderful experience where I could see consensus evolving at, at OECD and the importance of how narrative plays a role in kind of getting across a particular policy. So such kind of developments are quite fascinating. The kind of changes, the kind of uh, environment in which we are, the dynamism which transpassing uh, brings with it, it's, it's truly infectious. So that's how, let's say, I find myself interested or rather invested in transfer pricing. Tell us about the WU Transfer Pricing Center, what kinds of things you had learned from teaching there. Right. So firstly, the center is part of the Institute for Austrian and International Tax Law. So by virtue of its name, it's situated in Austria, in Vienna. And this forms a part of the VU, as they call it, the Vienna University of Economics and Business, which is one of the largest business schools in Europe. It's a business school basically focusing on business and economics, but also with some kind of specialization in business law. And so international tax law becomes one of the elements in it. So the center is headed by uh, Dr. Raffaele Petruzzi and is co-chaired by uh, Professor Robert Riesa and also externally supported by Professor Alfred Storr. 
So the head of our institute is Professor Michael Lang, who is well known within the tax treaty network. And we have about 90 researchers, each of them focusing on perhaps a personal dream of improving international tax law in their own way. So we deal with a lot of topics here at the Institute, uh, which includes VAT, which includes indirect taxes, global tax policy, uh, and transfer pricing being one amongst that. Now the center as such uh, has been in existence for the past uh, almost half a dozen years or five years to be more precise. It aims at providing the missing nexus between, let's say, practice and theory, because there's not much of academic activity which is happening with respect to specifically transfer pricing, which assimilates these different skill sets. And we are more renowned for the conferences which are organized annually. Like we have about 150 participants from over 60 countries who attend this. And we have panelists from OECD, the UN, and, and various other important stakeholders. So, so I would say uh, being part of the center is like having transfer pricing on steroids but in a positive way. <laughs> <laughs> Turning to India itself, uh, it is one of the major jurisdictions that is not currently a member of the OECD. Tell us about kind of the precarious position that it holds in, in global affairs, especially uh, with regards to transfer pricing. Right. So India traditionally uh, has been a highly litigious jurisdiction when it comes to transfer pricing to start with. And in that context, I think it plays a key role uh, in terms of the policy action towards issues which emanate from India. And so to that extent, I would say India plays a very critical role in the global transfer pricing scene. But uh, by virtue of its membership, it's like China, like Indonesia, South Africa, India is what is called as a key partner country for the OECD and not a member country. And unlike Brazil, which is looking for a process of ascension towards becoming a member, India does not see itself as, as becoming a part of the club, at least in the foreseeable future. But then India contributes extensively to the work of the OECD, and it's uh, extremely well represented at the steering group and the inclusive framework uh, set up of the OECD. It's part of the tax treaty working groups, the transfer pricing working groups, the CBCR, and various limbs of tax policy. More importantly, India is also a member of the United Nations, and that is where you see a lot of action uh, also flowing in from India uh, in terms of the policy development. It's, uh, it's prominent in the Committee of Experts, and it, it actively contributes to the uh, development of uh, the work of the Transfer Pricing Subcommittee in updating the Transfer Pricing Manual for Developing Countries. It has a dedicated chapter in the UN Transfer Pricing Manual which kind of precisely describes India's approach towards transfer pricing. And uh, I'm going to interrupt very quickly with our first CPE code word off the bat. And that word is complex as in, is there any other country uh, as complex as India, especially when it comes to transfer pricing? Uh, I think there might be a, a, some stiff competition there, I don't, uh, a, 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 even as far as our CPE code words go. Um, but how does India's transfer pricing documentation requirements align and differ from the OECDs? Right. This is something quite interesting to, to look at because India, as I mentioned, introduced the transfer pricing regulations based on the arm's length principle since 2001. And it broadly follows the themes, the intent, and the application of the OECD transfer pricing guidelines. But then the guidelines remind us soft law, 
and India is not an OECD member as well. Whereas India is part of the UN and, 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 and which also advocates the use of ALP. So one could argue that India is aligned to the OECD guidelines as much as the UN manual does. But beyond this, this theoretical background, one can also see that India being part of the BEPS has adopted the recommendations under Action 13, which apart from the local file, which it, which it already uh, introduced since 2001, also now includes the master file and the CBCR requirements. Each of these uh, reporting requirements having its own thresholds for uh, triggering its requirement as well as its application. Uh, however, unlike the OECD guidelines, which are more specialized with respect to concepts such as hard to value intangibles or profit splits or restructurings or even CCAs or CSAs uh, uh, flowing out of Action 8 and 10, uh, India may not have specialized guidances on these topics. But nevertheless, in its daily conduct of, of the tax administration as well as taxpayers, these concepts play a role. Uh, and then there are concepts such as uh, DEMPE or locational advantages, the market presence, and, and, and so on, which India is very strongly a proponent of. And, and to that extent, it is very much aligned to the, to the OECD thought process. And then, interestingly, one can also uh, see that India has a sixth method or what it calls as an any other method as one of its six methods. So while the OECD has typical five method approach towards transfer pricing, India has a sixth one and it uses uh, revenue splits or even valuations under the sixth method and not just for the use of commodity transactions, which classically the LATAM countries or the other developing countries may use. And perhaps another way of alignment as well as a divergence would be the use of the way in which interquartile range is used. So it is quite different from the typical OECD approach of the, looking at the 25th and the 75th quartile values, but rather India uses 35 to 65 kind of an approach where the comparability is far more restricted. So in essence, I would say that the broad documentation, the approach towards transpricing, the requirements of reporting in these documents, the nature of transactions are kind of aligned to the, to the OECD but it has its own uh, small deviances and perhaps a pick and mix uh, customization towards these concepts. So you could say that India and the OECD have the same goals in mind, they just go about it differently. Right. Okay. That would be, it would be fair to say that, yeah. And just to take a quick break to ask Fiona, Fiona, what about the multilateral instrument? Is India a part of that tax treaty network? Yes, Matt. On June 25, 2019, India deposited its instrument of ratification of the multilateral convention to implement tax treat-related measures to prevent base erosion and profit shifting. The MLI entered into force for India on October 1, 2019. On the master file, one thing we could clearly see is that the detailing, the level of detailing which India requires uh, goes slightly beyond the Action 13's uh, basic recommendations. So, for instance, uh, India requires a detailed description or to conduct a FAR of all the constituent entities that contribute to at least 10% of the revenues or assets or profits of the group, whereas Action 13 would say that give a brief FAR profile of the principal value contributors. Uh, OECD may require just an overview of the ownership locations, whereas uh, India may seek the list of every single entity in the group. OECD may also require only a general overview of the R&D facilities, location, and IP principle. But 
India will try to incorporate concepts of DEMPE, which it strongly feels about with respect to IPs. So, so we see that the level of detailing which India demands from its master file uh, goes slightly beyond the usual norms. And to that extent, I think when, when the group prepares the master file, uh, they need to take into account India's requirements as well. Now, is that one of the more challenging pieces of documentation for India? In terms of its criticality, I would say it is, it is yet to be seen as to how tax administrations are using these master files and, and how the regular assessments are kind of evolving based on this additional information which flows in. But clearly behind each of these uh, information pieces which are required by India, there is an intent behind that policy. And, and it will be quite interesting to see how this would be used to perhaps link it back to concepts like Tempe, uh, which are very critical to market economies like India or China in this case. And one more break to ask Fiona. Fiona, what are the CBCR requirements in India? According to final rules, CBCR requirements would apply to an international group for an accounting year if the total consolidated group revenue in the consolidated financial statement for the preceding accounting year exceeds 55 billion Indian rupee, or roughly $700 million. And let's talk about comparables. Does India require local comparables? In theory, there is no preference for local comparables over foreign comparables. However, as with many jurisdictions, field officers or even uh, level two officers may be reluctant to use foreign comparables right away when, when they look at a particular documentation. Uh, beyond the use of, I mean, beyond these behavioral aspects, uh, another way of looking at the use of local comparables is that India still remains to be what is called as an inbound jurisdiction. We are still uh, net importers of goods and services. so. It is, it is a significant licensee of various IPs and technologies. So one could make an assertion that this has led to a lot of local tested parties, which means the, more, uh, uh, the least complex entities are, are largely Indian subsidiaries, it could happen to be. And, uh, and given this natural setup or, or, this, or, or this economic setup, we, we see a lot of requirement for uh, local comparables as well. Uh, now, there could be situations where Asia-Pacific uh, comparable set or, or a more regional set could be used, but then at a field officer level to justify the country differences or the lack of reliability of country risk adjustments could, could automatically trigger an adjustment. So it, it is perhaps not recommended uh, to use uh, foreign comparables straight away or even asset parties which are foreign unless and until it is quite clear and quite well established. While perhaps seeking APAs or a forum which is as advanced as the APA forum in, in, in India, perhaps it is, is a, it is a better forum to test the use of foreign comparables because the, the authorities there are more receptive perhaps to these foreign comparables or adjustments which could be reliably made and could be justified in the form of documentation. Okay. And uh, fresh benchmarking is also required every year just for the, for the folks out there who have operations and probably need the reminder. So how aggressive are tax authorities in terms of transfer pricing audits? World over, I think tax jurisdictions are now far more mature when it comes to transfer pricing audits. The number of issues have become more standardized and the kind of outcomes also quite corrigible as, as opposed to what it was 10 years back. Now, with respect to the Indian tax administration, it could be a situation where the tax officers may not have been as much aware of transfer pricing in the past. like let's say 10 years back, 
as much as they are today. And so this lack of information or awareness about how transfer pricing goes about its, its conduct and how perhaps a transfer pricing audit is conducted could by itself uh, have resulted in certain outcomes which are not perhaps perfectly desirable in, in a proper transfer pricing audit environment. So unfortunately or fortunately, this could be termed as something aggressive. But as the jurisdiction is kind of maturing, now we see that there is some level of maturity with respect to approaching each of these transactions. And more importantly, uh, Indian Tax Administration in recent times has shifted to a risk-based assessment approach as opposed to a simple monetary-based threshold approach. So uh, a particular taxpayer may not be picked up uh, just because the total value of uh, transactions are crossing a particular limit, but more so because of the quality or the nature of these transactions and whether they are red flags in itself. So to my best understanding, there are algorithms which the Indian tax administrations use to pick up uh, and, and create red flags for, for certain types of high-risk transactions. Uh, it may not be as much standardized as color-coded uh, risk scoring approaches, which countries like Australia may use for purchasing hubs or marketing hubs and so on. But uh, there are certain standardized uh, risk approaches which the Indian tax administration has evolved into, into taking up. So if, if I were to look at the statistic, uh, a couple of years back, uh, I found one statistic which says that 55% of the cases which are picked for transfer pricing assessment uh, end up being adjusted uh, with an income addition uh, in taxes. So while, whereas the global average is around 25%. So, so this huge variance of 55% into 25% have possibly converged more and more in the past three years and we see that the kind of issues which are picked up are clearly being distinguished between what are routine issues in transfer pricing audits as opposed to what are strategic high value issues uh, with respect to PP. And in terms of this risk-based approach what might be seen as high risk to India in terms of transfer pricing? I would say uh, that intergroup services has typically been uh, an area of concern, a pain point where the Indian subsidiary will have to justify the cost benefit uh, behind the services. So this has been one aspect. Apart from this, marketing intangibles has, has been a beaten around issue by now in India where it is now currently pending with the Supreme Court of India. And while that issue has kind of matured, in the past five years, that had been a, a highly litigious aspect where uh, Indian distributors uh, of, let's say, uh, foreign brands um, distributing uh, consumer products or even manufacturing uh, may be faced with adjustments for uh, advertising, marketing, and, and selling expenses, So, so which would then be used, uh, uh, detected by means of a bright line test, so-called, and, and, and could be adjusted. So, these are the typical pain points which have been existing in the past, but which are kind of reducing or getting standardized in recent, recent times. And more so in terms of what would be more riskier in, in, in the future, uh, it could be more so in, in, in terms of the core development of intangibles and, and Indian tax authorities keenly looking at the market factors, the DEMPI issues with respect to intangibles. I think these are uh, strategic areas which, which are being looked at. In just last month in February, the Union Budget 2020 was presented. What does that mean for transfer pricing? 
one of the key elements of of the budget when it comes to transfer pricing was perhaps a lot of expectation around what happens with the digital proposals which had come out in the past so right from 2018 there has been uh, a significant economic presence which became enacted in the domestic law and the whole question was whether this is going to be applicable or not and now this has been deferred until 2021 until the oecd uh, emerges with its consensus so that's one key change because this has an important bearing in terms of profit allocation and attribution of profits uh, from an indian context so this becomes one of the key elements i would say and they basically want to wait and see what the multilateral approach becomes before they make a move right so that seems to be uh, the current mood within the indian tax administration that there should be some kind of uh, window until let's say april 2021 uh, before which we will know what happens with the oecd consensus which should be ideally emerging uh, by the end of 2020 and yeah. and if the consensus is satisfying to india as well uh, then perhaps there would be a completely different approach with, with with regard to the significant economic presence and and how it plays out in domestic law uh, but if not uh, then it would it could be a unilateral measure uh, uh, regardless of the consensus note to multinational companies everywhere if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world and where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue that's right your transfer pricing you can't afford to be non-compliant but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either oops sorry big four we've got the answer cross border solutions ai powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate hyper localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits penalties and adjustments and our technology is available for one flat fee a fraction of what you'd pay a big name consultant again apologies big four stay in compliance and on budget with cross border solutions ai driven transfer pricing software it's no wonder we're the global leader in ai driven tax solutions there we go again i'm so sorry big you know what wait who am i kidding sign up for a free demo of cross border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp that's xbs.ai slash tp in april last year the indian central board of direct taxes proposed new rules for profit attribution to permanent establishments which suggest abandoning the arms length standard uh, what was this proposal yeah that's right so in april 2019 almost nearly a year ago already uh the indian cbdt the central board of direct taxes released a 84 page public consultation document which sought to amend india's existing rules on profit attribution to pes so this was achieved by means of a committee that was formed by the cbdt and it examined the existing schemes and it made certain recommendations so this is perhaps the first time that a country has sought to apply a formulary apportionment not for internal allocation between states or so on but rather for at an international taxation for an international taxation context now the proposal essentially calls for use of a fractional apportionment uh, that seeks to allocate revenue sourced from india by a non resident company 
that may constitute a P under this significant economic presence rule, which was enacted a year before, that is in 2018, and attribute profits using weighted factors that include sales, manpower, employees, and assets. So this entire formulaic approach, perhaps at its broadest term, mirrors the US or the Canadian approach of, of how it happens for internal statewide allocation purposes and even the proposal under the EU CCTB, the Common Consolidated Corporate Tax Base, uh, which has not become a reality yet. Uh, but one should be careful to note that the Indian proposal is not strictly a formulary apportionment, but rather what is called as a fractional apportionment. And the key difference here is that the use of financial information here is restricted to the, to the level of the operations of this non-resident within the country of India in this case. So it is not a unitary taxes which is being thought of here, but rather that is it, it does not seek to allocate or consolidate all the profits across the group and allocate this across each of these uh, jurisdictions across different companies, imagining, I mean, rather keeping in mind the, the, the cumbersome nature of it, but rather it merely seeks to address the profit derived from Indian operations which is then allocated based on factors which are applicable to the Indian leg of operations of the non-resident, subject to nexus and, and, and business presence there. So instead of taking the global consolidation and allocating profits, it's taking the Indian profits and allocating just those. Yeah, the, the profits which are derived out of India. So essentially, uh, this means that a group will have to determine what amount of profits is derived out of India by virtue of, of, of uh, business connection, which is now defined uh, in, in Indian domestic law. And, and for that leg of profit, it will need to discern then the allocation factors and, and kind of attribute the profit accordingly. And as I understand it, this isn't to be used on all multinational enterprises. So this would mean that uh, m and with a business connection in India and that is actively sourcing uh, revenue from India uh, would, would, would come under the radar, which means essentially uh, a non-physical presence or a remote presence would directly get addressed uh, through this. And also non-residents, which are primarily constituted by the existence of users beyond a particular prescribed threshold. So there are two triggers to this. And any M&E group, which would, by virtue of these two triggers, qualify for, for business connection in India, would, would then have to comply with uh, this fractional apportionment mechanism. So that's a, that's a pretty sophisticated idea. I'm just wondering how has the OECD or the UN or other countries responded to this proposal? This proposal has been communicated at the OECD forums and also the UN is very much aware of, of this proposal. And in fact, uh, we have seen that uh, some of these ideas have, have also flown into the work of, of, of the OECD or the UN. Uh, more so with, with respect to OECD, we can see that even when we take the first public consultation document, which came out uh, almost a year back in between February and March. Right. So, so pillar one. Yeah. And when one of the key proposals was significant economic presence uh, as one of the options among marketing intangibles and user-based participation. But when it comes to fractional apportionment as, as, as a standalone concept, there is currently not much traction specifically around the use of fractional apportionment, perhaps because of the cumbersome or the requirements for, uh, for it being robust and 
and to and the difficulties in even discerning the profits which are uh, particularly attributable or derived from india so these kind of numerical constraints perhaps are discouraging the use of fractional apportionment but uh, having said that it is still not maybe as cumbersome as a global formulary apportionment and and it could form an alternative in case uh, the consensus discussions go board in a particular direction which which is not uh, fruitful and it's time for our second cpe code word and that word is lucky as in we're very lucky to have saini with us today uh, saini uh, how does india address double taxation concerns with how they structure how they go about permanent establishments right so firstly now in in combination with all these issues ec i would say at least in my personal opinion there are clear concerns of of double taxation to start with now double taxation can happen in multiple ways so first we're looking at even double counting between the various uh, digital tax measures which india has undertaken over the past years so this starts again right away from 2016 when equalization levy was introduced by india which is the direct tax on uh, advertising revenues which are sourced by non residents out of india and that of fees that could be constituted by virtue of uh, the new proposal including the acp so under the uh, equalization levy we had a uh, 6% uh, on the gross revenue which were non non residents which had to be deposited with the indian government so that's one level of of taxation a b2b a business to business kind of a transaction which comes under the tax purview uh so this is one uh, of 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 the many digital elements of taxes which which india has and uh although this clearly states that in law that uh, there would be no double counting because uh in country presence by which there is already some pre existing physical presence in india and to that extent the tax liability which has already accrued from this physical presence will not be included uh in in with respect to the equalization levy so we see that there have been efforts to to reduce double counting having said that these risks exist because as and when these policies evolve we do not know how the interactive effects of these elements would be and uh, statistics are clearly showing that uh, equalization levy has been a good source of revenue for for the for the government over the past 2 to 3 years uh, since its inception uh, so this is at one level but apart from this we have the usual risk of double taxation that always comes uh, when it comes to transfer pricing and in india the treaty provisions take precedence over the domestic law so a non residents business profits can be taxed under domestic law only if the applicable treaty allows so to this extent india may still want to renegotiate most of its treaties if the acp rule and the fractional apportionment becomes a reality in future and what would be the outcome is only anybody's guess at this point of time but it should also be noted that uh there will be countries which do not have an active tax treaty with india and with respect to these countries the new rules would have a direct impact uh, on them the proposal also offers a solution to the digital economy what can you tell us about that right so the proposal clearly comes in light of digital economy and perhaps this could be coincidental or not but when we look at the past as i mentioned over the past 5 years there have been various stages of uh, proposals coming out of india or some of them already enacted in law starting with the equalization levy and then the expansion of the business connection and and the profit attribution 
uh, using fractional apportionment. And, and in each of these stages, we see that it has a bearing on digital economy without actually ring-fencing the digital economy, which is a good positive. For non-residents with non-physical presence, uh, even with mere user base in India or revenue which would be generated out of the user base or active uh, user data in India, we see that there is an exposure due to this new rule. And this is precisely what at the OECD level we are looking at addressing when it comes to Pillar 1. Currently, the debate stands with respect to the non-physical presence or the remote presence. And we have the A, B, and C, which has its own approaches towards this. So there is a bit of an interactive effect of commonality or an intent. But my only opinion here would be is that the, the, my question here rather would be that whether this really encompasses uh, the true challenge of digitalization itself. Because we see that at the OECD level now in, in the recent inclusive framework uh, document, which was released on 31st of January, we see that the scope has been enhanced to include cloud computing to include automated digital services and so on, which are key features of digitalization, which may not be currently featuring in this year-old draft of India's proposal. So whether the new proposal from India truly addresses all the digital challenges, perhaps not. But perhaps it is also evolving in, in that direction and, and we could see more traction in the next years uh, to address specific themes of digitalization apart from just the non-physical presence and the nexus. Now, uh, the outcomes or, or concerns of Pillar 1 are similar to the concerns of India's proposal in that it kind of rewrites transfer pricing almost completely. I mean, there's no dependency on the arm's length principle. The profit allocation isn't necessarily based on function, assets, and risks. I, I have that right? True. This is, uh, this is true. But, but then the, the question is, the whole proposal is in light of attribution of profits to permanent establishments and seeks to address the, the remote presence of companies and not necessarily the existing uh, uh, physical relationships and relationship and subsidiaries, parent relationships which exist. Perhaps it could be a rewrite and it could be extended beyond its current scope, but at its current status, it, it would perhaps apply only with respect to this new nexus and uh, attribution of profit to these permanent establishments which, which would come out. And right now, how does taxation work in India? With respect to taxation in India, and specifically with respect to permanent establishments, uh, a foreign enterprise would be considered as a permanent establishment in India if a foreign enterprise uh, would have a fixed place of business in India or doing a business in India through, let's say, a place of effective management, a branch, an office, a workshop. Uh, it could be a, a building site or a construction installation. Uh, it could be a service PE or an agency PE, uh, and 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 so on. So, uh, it could these could be the typical characterizations. That is, dependent agent PEs, installation PEs, supervisory PEs, fixed place PEs. Uh, these would form the typical forms of of uh, uh, permanent establishments in in India. And when it comes to attribution, it would. It would also have the typical two-step approach, uh, first to establish the business connection and nexus, and then go about uh, with, with respect to the attribution of profits. So uh, this is why the country introduced the significant economic presence rule in 2018, right? I think I should first give a background behind 
why significant economic presence was was introduced because i i didn't address that in the, in the previous part of my answer to give a background about the existing methodology for attribution of profits to permanent establishment under the existing regulations a p needs to maintain books of accounts in india so attribution of profits can be done based on actual profits made by the p based on the books of accounts which is under the direct accounting method but in the absence of books of accounts or failure to let's say reliably determine the actual profits of the p's the assessing officer or the officer determining the, the attribution would have powers under specific rules to use one of the indirect apportionment methods so that could be ad hoc percentages of turnover clearly under the discretion of the uh, officer or based on any proportion of the total profits uh, based on any reliable allocation method methodology which is available so in the past judicial precedents have also been kind of divergent with respect to this because uh, some have uh, resorted to the use of uh, certain allocation methodologies or some have reverted back to the uh, alp as as the means by which there could be some allocation so uh, for dependent agent pes in the past we could have 10 to 50% of the total profit being allocated for uh, supervisory pes it could be around 10% for fixed place it could be even up to 60% sometimes so so as we can see there is an ad hoc mechanism or there is no one fixed mechanism based out of which uh, an officer could could go about the attribution process under the domestic law so this has led to the let's say the, the whole conceptualization behind the significant economic presence and the debate on digital only adds to this opportunity of of clearly defining a process by which an attribution could take place due to these uncertainties or ad hoc allocations in in the existing domestic law the committee has stated that a process needs to be formulated where these digital elements which are emerging also needs to be considered so business connection as mentioned before uh, was substantially amended in 2018 to expand its scope to incorporate the recommendations of the final webs action 7 report and this is where new thresholds for the significant economic presence came in so the significant economic presence is not a completely alien concept uh, it has its own roots in the web so according to the 2018 amendment in domestic law a non resident can have an acp or a significant economic presence through two different means that is if the revenue from the transactions in india exceeds a particular amount and this would include downloading of data or software and so on so that's where the elements of digital come in or if it digitally interacts with a set of number of users in india digital users for systematic continuous solicitation with respect to business activities so this precisely is how the acp is triggered with respect to india what is india's economic justification for the proposed fractional method according to the committee the revisions in the 2010 Uh, authorized OECD approach uh, using a separate entity concept departed from the use of a mixed approach which was existing in the pre 2010 OECD model and which was also reflective in the UN UN model which 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 has not been revised ever since so since the UN model has not been revised it was reflective in Indian tax treaties so after the revision of the 2010 authorized OECD approach 
all the revisions have not been carried out in several domestic laws on, and, and in several tax treaties as on date. So the use of FAR analysis under the revised authorized OECD approach is not perhaps uh, something which India leans towards. And because India primarily seems to position that this departure of use of FAR analysis falls broadly under the supply approach, uh, which is where the profits are allocated exclusively to jurisdictions where supply chain activities are allocated, a more cost-based approach, and not considering the sales and the demand factors. Now, India being a market jurisdiction and being a source of, of revenue, sales revenue, uh, seems to position that it is important to take into account both the sales and the cost side, cost side factors. The proposal asserts that the mixed approach is a mixed approach is used by UN model and the Indian tax treaties, which basically provides greater taxing rights to revenue sourcing countries by means of a force of attraction rule. And uh, also certain deductibilities of costs, uh, which is a major variance between the UN model and the OECD model. So this is the broad rationale, I would say, behind which uh, the entire proposal has been made, which is to, to take into account the demand side factors, which, which, which have not been considered according to the Indian position in the author revised OECD authorized approach. So India thinks its approach then is more balanced. Right. So that's what it appears to position itself to be. Okay. I just have one more question for you, and it's about your experience. I know you were just recently an intern at the OECD, but it seems like you just had perfect timing uh, to be an intern there, as I think you, you were working on Pillar 1. Is that right? No, absolutely right. I think the timing was perfect because I was into my internship, and uh, we had then started discussing about the unified approach because uh, it was not initially a unified approach. As I mentioned, it was three different proposals which, which were uh, uh, existing on a standalone basis. And, and so the timing was perfect because we could do a lot of brainstorming and I could involve myself uh, in various work streams on, on financial accounting, on segmentation, uh, on, on baseline profits, uh, losses, and so on. So, so it, was, it was perhaps a once-in-a-lifetime experience for me personally. Yeah, once in a lifetime, that's for sure. And you were there for six months? Right. So I started out uh, in June 2019, and I was there until the December. Wow. Wow. What a, what a time to be there, in just in terms of, of the history of the organization and, and this moment in international tax. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm just grateful for uh, to have... Uh, the platform based on which I could I could then go there as an intern. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, 
Why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. And I think that just about wraps our discussion, but the fun isn't over yet. We have time for my favorite part of the show, what we want to know. Here's how it works. We put an expert in the hot seat. That's you, Sine, And fire off a rapid round of questions. Here we go. What mistakes do you see multinationals making over and over again in terms of transfer pricing? Right. Usually the answer would be documentation and internal risk assessment. But I would say the root cause of, of issues which which are recurring is that not having the right people for doing transfer pricing or rather treating transfer pricing as merely a compliance activity while it should be more integrated in the strategic functions of, of an M&E. Uh, also, m and should accept uncertainty as a way of life in the, for the next 10 years because now we have seen in the past 10 years that there was BEPS and a lot of activities which came out until 2017. And just when we started aligning ourselves to these standards, we have already begun wondering about what happens with the digital. And each of these pieces of digital would keep flowing in, in, in the next half a dozen years. So, so we are eventually entering into a zone where uh, M&Es should no more whine about the uncertainties, but rather just accept that this is what it is going to be and, and try to align their priorities accordingly. What life lessons do you hope your students learn from you? Right. So firstly, I'm not a very senior teacher. My teaching experiences uh, are span about two, two years at the max uh, at the university here. And, but, but I would say that, first of all, uh, that there is an interesting group of elders in the system to look up to, um, and, and, and that's one. But I would say that perhaps the best learning which they could take away is, is to embrace every skill that is needed to make them a better DP professional and not put themselves in silos of I am a lawyer or an economist or an accountant or so on, but rather to look at everything as a seamless integrated concept because DP, for being a DP, successful DP professional, it would demand one to be an expert or, or, or at least um, uh, a flavor of each of these fields uh, in the future. And what life lessons have your students taught you? Right. So one uh, lesson is that no matter how far we go with respect to a subject, the basics are pretty much important. Uh, we see that even cases, high-profile cases such as the EU state aid uh, cases are still hinged on uh, issues around the choice of profit-level indicators, tested parties, simple accounting errors, and, and, and documentation uh, matters. So I would say uh, uh, my students have kind of taught me that sticking to the basics and to still be able to explain the basics at whatever level, uh, be it at, at an undergraduate level or, or postgraduate level is, is so much more important uh, than just about evolving or, or deepening your skill set. Finish this sentence. If I weren't a transfer pricing rock star, I'd be... I would be a professional philosopher. I don't know if the field exists, but rather... I would uh, uh, indulge myself in, in matters of the mind and perhaps epistemology and, and so on. So that's where I would head myself into. 
Very cool. I mean, if you write a book, anything's a job, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> People define success in different ways. What's your definition? Uh, well, we see that success is having no particular destination. Uh, we see changes constantly evolving. Uh, uh, uh. So I would say constant improvement would be a tempting goal, but I would rather choose to define it as being a good human uh, at an individual level. That's success for me. And that was very fun for us too, Saini. Thank you so much for joining us today. No doubt we've given you a lot to think about for those at home. And the good news is we'll be back with more next week. Be sure to catch it. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and we'll include you in on great transfer pricing discussions every week. And don't forget about our sister podcast, Hot Off the Press, where you'll see which tax authorities are making headlines. This podcast was hosted, edited, and engineered by yours truly, Matthew DeMello, executive producer Marilyn Mitchum-Strom writes our scripts. We'll be back with another riveting transfer pricing discussion next week. Catch you then. 